Welcome to the Weekly Discourse. I'm your host, Bryce Pigham. I'm the Director of Media and Communications at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We're on the Man of God Network, a podcasting ministry of CBTS. The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry. We want to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are to the end that he is better known, loved, and exalted. If you haven't already, I encourage you to listen to some of the other shows on the network. Uh, In Confessing the Faith, Dr. Sam Waldron is currently unpacking the doctrine of Scripture as it is found in the first chapter of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, Over the next four weeks, he'll be discussing the authority of Scripture, so you'll want to tune into that. Uh, There's very helpful uh, points in there. And you also don't want to miss particular pilgrims over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Pastor Ron Miller, he's been telling us the story of Thomas Hardcastle's faithfulness in the midst of unbelievable persecution. And this week he turns our attention uh, to the story of the infamous particular Baptist apostate, John Child. This is a really sober telling of a sad story which ought to move us all to greater watchfulness over our own souls the souls of our families, and the souls of others in our churches. Um, so, so do check out the Man of God Network on your favorite podcast app and uh, subscribe so you can uh, get access to this great content. Uh, we are thankful for those of you who have listened and have shared the shows. Um, if you've enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a good review on iTunes or the podcast app that you use so that others can benefit from these podcasts as well. If you're not familiar with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we are a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary providing affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men. You can complete a seminary education while staying in your church. So pastors, if you have a gifted man in your congregation and you'd like him to receive a theological education while remaining in your church under your mentorship, uh, consider Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And don't forget about our upcoming modular course offering on the life and ministry of Benjamin Keach here in Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, God willing, this will be held on September 4th through the 7th, and will be taught by Dr. Tom Hicks, who's the pastor of First Baptist Church of Clinton, Louisiana, and Dr. Chris Holmes, who's the pastor of Yellow Creek Baptist Church here in Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, If you're interested in taking this course, it will be offered in a live stream format, And you don't have to be a student at CBTS to participate in this either. You can audit the course via live stream or in person. Uh, To learn more about registration and fees, you can visit cbtseminary.org slash keach2020. We're also excited to begin live classes next month for the fall semester. Uh, That's actually coming up. Uh, It's actually here already. Uh, We're beginning live classes uh, uh, next week. Uh, Dr. Sam Waldron will be teaching on the doctrine of God starting next week. So if you are a student and you haven't signed up for live classes, I encourage you to consider uh, the courses that we have uh, lined up for this fall. As I've said, Doctrine of God with Dr. Sam Waldron. Um, Dr. Fred Malone is going to be teaching a course on preaching Christ from all scripture, which should be excellent. Um, And I've mentioned the Keech class as well. So I encourage you to sign up for these classes in the fall if you haven't already. Uh, And again, if you're not a student and you'd be interested in auditing any of these courses live, you can do so by visiting cbtseminary.org slash registration. 
And turning to this week's discourse, some have said that one of the most critical departure points on so many issues in the church today is revolving around the law of God. And we can probably think about many issues uh, that revolve around this issue. Um, Some pertinent questions have been raised. Uh, For instance, what role does my continued obedience to the law, or as some have called covenant faithfulness, play in my salvation? And another that's been raised is, are civil magistrates responsible to uphold the civil code in the law of God? Uh, Some called this theonomy. Is theonomy consistent with the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith? Uh, these are these are questions that are on the mind of many in our day, um, and we were blessed that in the midst of our modular course on the Decalogue and Sabbath in Redemptive History this past May at the beginning of the summer, uh, we hosted a helpful conversation between Dr. Sam Waldron and Dr. John English Lee on the subject of the law of God and the Sabbath. And the first part of this conversation uh, addressed questions uh, such as the ones that I raised previously here, uh, revolving around federal vision, theonomy, and the application of the law. Uh, we wanted to give you the opportunity to listen in on this conversation, so we will listen We'll listen to it on today's show and on next week's as well. This week uh, is part one, uh, which, as I've said, addresses the question of federal vision and theonomy. Uh, next week, we'll address questions specifically about the practical application of the fourth commandment. The Sabbath. So let's join Dr. Waldron and Dr. Lee for this week's discourse. Rexford Semrod. I am the Dean of Students here at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And for the last couple of days, we've um, been having a class on the Decalogue in, and the Sabbath in Redemptive History, taught by um, Dr. Lee here. And uh, we wanted to take a little bit of time here um, before the end of the class to just um, have a general Q&A between Dr., with Dr. Waldron and Dr. Lee. Um, Dr. Waldron is the president and professor of historical and systematic theology at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary and uh, pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church here in Owensboro, Kentucky. And Dr. John English Lee is uh, pastor of discipleship at Warren View Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, both men got their PhDs at the Southern Theological Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. And uh, so we're, we're just going to go over some questions with reference to the Decalogue and the Sabbath and redemptive history. Um, so, um, gentlemen, I'll just throw out this one first. Uh, many faulty views of the law of God can seem viable in the abstract, but their problems become evident when specific, specific texts are brought into view. For instance, Galatians 3, 13 and 14 is text demonstrates problems with things like dispensationalism and New Covenant theology, I think. And I'll just read that. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Could you flesh out for us the problems that become evident when one attempts to square some of these errant views of the law of God with a text like this? I'm going to go first here because this, this is, brings up very vivid memories for me from uh, doctoral seminars at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I was in one, uh, it was a doctoral seminar on the law and the gospel. Uh, it was one led by Dr. Mark Seifred. And uh, I remember there were about 12 or 13 guys in it, John English. And uh, we had every, every kind of uh, somewhat Calvinistic Baptist around that table, you could imagine. We had Calvinist, we had New Covenant guys, we had Lutheran-oriented guys, and uh, there were even a couple of Reformed Baptists around the table. I was one of them. And this text came up, you know, and uh, they're talking about it. And here's the problem. This talks about the redemption we have in Christ Jesus as redemption from the curse of the law. But the dispensationalists, the New Covenant theologians, and uh, a lot of the faculty members at Southern don't believe that Gentiles, like ourselves, uh, were then or were ever or are now under the law of God. And so when a text like this comes up, the problem is, uh, which most Christians read and think of as, a, of, of as a text that speaks of their own redemption, uh, it can't be talking about Gentiles because the Gentiles were never under the law of God because that was just for the Jews. And, uh, and that's the actual exegesis that some of the warring, very well-known men there and many well-known uh, theologians across the evangelical world take. But, but then they face head-on a collision with the fact that then this text is not talking about the redemption of the Gentiles. It can't be because they were never under the curse of the law because they're under the law to begin with. And so uh, I think a text like this kind of shatters some of the uh, assumptions about the law of God that are just far and wide in um, even the evangelical world today. I completely agree. Um, I bet a law in the gospel class with Mark Seifert was fascinating. <laughs> I, Mark Seifert was my Sunday school teacher for a while. He, he was, a, was he really? Yeah, he was a, at the time a closet Lutheran teaching at a at a Southern Baptist school. And let me tell you a story about Mark Seifert. <laughs> I was once sitting in his office. He was on my committee. Um, that's a long story too. You can imagine because I did my uh, PhD on justification. And I was sitting in his office, and he remarked to me, he said, Sam, you're just about as reformed as a Baptist can be. <laughs> he said, I'm just about as Lutheran as a Baptist can be. And he said, you're just about as reformed as a Baptist can be. It's strange we get along so well, he said. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on to the next question, um, which is how should we think about the phrase living faith or obedient faith in today's context as it has been used by some associated with federal vision. It's a reference to the uh, idea that's uh, in, in, uh, across the board infection and new perspective and therefore to some degree on federal vision that uh, we're justified by faithfulness 
Right. Which then puts the element of obedience to the law of God into the faith by by which we are justified. So I, I would guess it's something we're brought, like We're that. brought in by grace, yeah. but the living faith is something that must remain living for us to have access to that faith. Yeah. We have to keep ourselves in by the works of the law, or mm -hmm. obedience to the boundary markers of the covenant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we addressed that a little bit in the class, and it it um, <clears throat> it sounds very pious, right? We, we want to have a living faith, right? We want to have an active faith. Right? In one sense, yes, um, but to... To use it in such a way that smuggles works into our justification is really what Paul wrote the letter to the church at Galatia about. Yeah. Right. And so, um, when we when we do that, it it can on the surface make us feel good because I have been baptized, for example. If that's one of the works, right? I can tangible. I can see. I'm in the covenant, and it brings initially assurance. But if we base it on our works, there's two inevitable ditches that we will we will vacillate from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And one will be we look at the law and we know that we're not keeping it the way that we should be. And so we lose our assurance and we get depressed and we get introspective and we're, we're downtrodden and despaired because our performance, our works is part of our justification. And we, we're worried, am I even standing before God is righteous? Mm. Or we go the other way and we're self-deceived and we think, I am doing the works of the law. I'm righteous. Look at how great that I am, mm. right? And we start to slowly but surely displace our works into where Christ's works need to be as the ground of our justification. And so those two ditches are kind of inevitable and some vacillate between the two. Pastorally, you'll see both of them bouncing back mm. and forth. Mm. Whenever there's a works being inadvertently or sometimes overtly smuggled into our justification. Yeah. I really like uh, Calvin's comments, and he does it two different places, if my memory serves me. He does it in his commentary on Galatians 5 6, and then he does it in commenting on approximately the same passage in the Institutes in Book 3. Uh, of course, Galatians 5 6 says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith, which works through love. And of course, in the battles that he was going through as a Protestant, the Roman Catholics were constantly uh, quoting that text to him that, you know, the only kind of faith that matters is a faith which works through love. And, and Kelvin's response to that, I think, uh, was uh, really definitive and, and, and also, um, kind of lays out the lines upon which the Protestant doctrine of justification has to be defended. He says, yes, we're only saved by a faith which works through love, but we're not saved by that faith because it works through love. The, the, the justifying quality of faith is not its works. The justifying quality of faith is its uniting us to Christ. And that's the distinction. I'm not I'm not saying it nearly as well as Kelvin does, but uh, look at what what he comments on Galatians 5, 6. Mm -hmm. Look at what he says in the Institutes on that subject. It can seem like a fine distinction when you read it, but in fact, the entire Reformation hung on that fine distinction. Right. Absolutely right. But it seems that any change, and, this is, and, and other error, errors that, that that alter justification by faith they, they suddenly change what faith actually is. Faith 
is a laying hold of Christ, right, and in full dependence upon Him, mm-hmm. and 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 so it, they they seem subtle on the surface. The, the redefinition of faith to be faithfulness, but it actually ends up eliminating mm-hmm. that entire aspect. You're no longer entirely relying yeah. on Christ. <clears throat> You're relying on Him and something else, yeah. which is actually wiping out. Yeah, and and it's really a denial of one of the key aspects of justifying faith and justification in the Reformation, and that's the what they would have called the passive character of justifying faith. Not passive in the sense that the soul of the believer does nothing, but passive in the sense that what it does is simply rest and receive. The, the justifying quality of faith is not faithfulness, not obeying God's law, not works. The justifying quality is the resting on Christ, the receiving Christ. If you look at the confession of faith, uh, it's very clear, uh, says, says that very clear. And, and pastorally, that's very important because our people will have uh, waxing and waning uh, um, feelings or emotions or, or uh, senses of how they're doing spiritually. They're, it'll feel like their faith is right. going up and down. And when they tend to think that their union to Christ is dependent upon how hard they can hold on to Christ. Well, in those moments of weakness, they get really scared. And they need to hear that the ground, the assurance of your faith, is the faithfulness of Christ that has been imputed to you. Yeah. Right? So the security that we have is not contingent upon how faithful I am. Right. The security that I have is contingent upon me being effectually called and united to Christ and receiving from Him the imputation of his active obedience. Yeah. And and subtly these all of these changes to justification undermine Christ's work and minimize his active obedience to the law and its imputation to us. Yeah. Uh, so it it's it's not a small thing. I, I say in the class multiple times that when you mess with one of these doctrines, you're you're rip making ripples through shockwaves through the rest of theology. Right. Um, and so it's it's very important for, for various doctrines. You're making me think about a paper I did. I guess it was another paper from Mark Seifert. We had a class in the use of the Old Testament in Romans. I think it was for Dr. Seifert. But I did my paper on Romans 4.3, which contains the famous text from Genesis 15.6, uh, that uh, Abraham, it was Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. If you read uh, a lot of the uh, Jewish writings of the period, they approach that text in an entirely different way than the Apostle Paul. What they see in that text is Abraham was this really faithful, God-obeying kind of guy, and that's why it was credited for righteousness. That's what Genesis 15, 6 is talking about. But when you read the Old Testament and then you read Paul's use of it, what the orientation of, of Abraham's believing there in Genesis 15, 6 and the way Paul quotes it in Romans 4, 3, it's not oriented to law-keeping at all. Uh, I like to say that, you know, in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham wasn't doing anything. He was standing there looking dumb. <laughs> but but, but what, what was key to that was the orientation to the promise of God. So the orientation of faith in Genesis 15, 6, and 14, Romans 4, 3, is not to faithfulness, not to obedient law-keeping. The orientation is to simple resting on the promises of God. And that's what, that's what Paul is bringing out there in Romans 4. Abraham is a good example of the, the, the passive element of mm-hmm. justification. Right here. Yeah. He has nothing to contribute to what God has done and promised yeah. to him.
Amen. All right, well, we knew in a class on the law in this day, we're going to get some questions on theonomy. So here they come. Can a reconstructionist or theonomist be consistent with our confession's view of the law? Would you ever consider someone who holds this view to be considered for a church leadership role? No, no. Next. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, well, I I actually probably would agree with what you just said, but let let, let me nuance this a little bit. (laughs) Let me nuance this a little bit. Um, there's an historical lesson that I think is maybe appropriate here. Um, in the early church, there was a movement called Montanism, which in its original form was horrible. They had female prophets and female leadership in the church, and they thought the millennium was going to come down to, uh, to a town in Phrygia. And, uh, but, uh, but, you know, it was quite a, uh, influential movement, although early on it was rejected by most of the local uh, leadership of the church and in that section of Asia, of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. But uh, what happened with, re- and, 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 and say, what are you talking about Montanism? We're talking about theonomy, but listen to me. Um, what happened was that that movement began to attenuate, feather out, uh, become modified as it spread, okay? So that uh, then uh, 40 or 50 years later, uh, you know, Tertullian, the famous church father in North Africa, is willing to, some, in some sense, identify himself as a Montanist. But what the church historians will tell you is, even if that's true, it wasn't the original kind of Montanist. And that's what I want to say about this question. Uh, well, look, um, I don't, we, we have to define what we mean by theonomist here, right? Now, are we talking about uh, Gary North, Rushus Rush Dooney, and Greg Bonson? I know what they said. Um, and uh, with regard to those guys, I don't think they're consistent with the confession. And I completely agree with what Dr. Lee said here. Uh, and, no, and no, they can't, they, they can't and they don't. Uh, uh, I think ascribed the confession, although Bonson thought he did. Ru- North and Rush Dooney certainly didn't. Um, um, they didn't. They didn't uh, believe the confession on this issue, um, and so they. And since our confession is the same as the Westminster, which they, which Bonson held, and uh, would have been the tradition they were in. Uh, so I, I don't think that a theonomist, in that original sense, can. But the problem is. Um, the definition of theonomy is kind of feathered out and gotten modified, and I'm not quite sure what people mean by it now today, right? right? Um, uh, and, and, well, theonomy just means that I believe in God's law. Well, good, so do I. But um, I, I think the original theonomy was absolutely committed against the threefold division of God's law. Right. Uh, I think that... Uh, at the very thesis of Greg Bonson's book is the abiding validity of the law of Moses in exhaustive detail. You know, if you're, you believe that, yeah, that's what, that's what the most modified version of theonomy was 40 years ago. So, um, if, if you mean something different by theonomy, let's have a discussion about that. 
But if you're going to go by the fathers of the movement, you know, North Rush, Dooney, and Bonson, I don't think could have uh, confessed the threefold division of the law in the sense the confession brings it forward. Although I would acknowledge that Bonson was a little more confessional than North and Rush Dooney were. I think Bonson was actually a, a well, that's, Bonson was actually, I think, a Sabbatarian. North and Rush Dooney, for all their st stuff about God's law, somehow, even though they believed in God's law in every other sense, weren't Sabbatarians. What in the world is that's fascinating? What, what, what's, what's with that? I don't get that at all, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree with the, as historically defined back with Rush Dooney and those guys, yeah. their, their position is clear. It's, it's, they're, not, they're not hiding anything. Today, the term theonomist gets tossed around a lot. You get tossed around on mediums that don't lend themselves to nuance like Twitter and Facebook. And, yeah. like, um, and it's used as a pejorative or it's used as a badge of honor. And no one is being nuanced and careful about what they mean by that. So, sure. so, so if we're just talking about there is instructive uses of the civil laws, the judicial laws in the Old Testament for us today. Well, that's what the confession says. Right? Sure. Um, but to say that those things need to come over on a one-to-one -one basis, it's hard to say that and then be consistent with that interpretive framework because there's a whole lot of things that they wouldn't say need to come over exactly in the same yeah. way. They won't go quite as far as the statement that everything in exhaustive detail from the Mosaic law needs to come over. It's hard to do that and also read your New Testament faithfully. Right. Um, and so you see things like the, the hardline position came out 40 years ago, but then people start modifying and it gets a little wobbly and you're trying to figure out. So again, like you're saying, let's sit down and have this conversation and see what you mean by that. If you just mean by that, that the civil magistrate needs to really enforce consequences upon um, moral problems and culture. Well, yeah, yeah okay, that's yeah. good. I agree. Yeah, I, I, so. exactly so. Um, but I, I would want to argue that when you start talking about uh, bringing over the um, enforcements, the uh, pro the prosecution, the penalties mm -hmm. of the law, that you're going you're going someplace that if you read Book Four, Chapter Twenty of the Institutes, John Calvin didn't go. John Calvin was not a theonomist. And if you want to you want to say that if you want to say we should learn something from the penalties of the civil law in a general way, general equity, okay. But if you're going to tell me that we got to bring those and seek to have the penalties of the civil law in Israel uh, made into law in the United States of America, and that's our duty as Christians, I'm sorry. That's not uh, that's not even John Calvin. Go read Book Four, Chapter 20. He says explicitly that that's not what he believes. And, and actually apparently have some people in mind that actually did believe that. But Yeah, totally agree. They're, like I said uh, in the class already, everybody wants Calvin on their team. And yeah. uh, Calvin's not on that team. Yeah. He's, he's pretty clear about it. Yeah. If, if you're going to take a term like theonomy that has a historical meaning, you, and, and you're going to take it upon yourself, but then redefine it. You need to be really clear what you mean by it. And you probably just shouldn't use the term. If right. it's, it, it reminds me of the, what Norman Geisler kept calling himself a Calvinist. <laughs> and then, you know, he writes the book and you find out, okay, he considers himself a Calvinist because he's redefined every, the meaning of every one of the five points of Calvinism. Mm -hmm. 
But uh, this is, this leads us neatly into our next question, um, which is, what would you say to people who say that general equity is theonomy because you're getting your laws from God versus your own opinions, i.e. The theonomy versus autonomy? So yeah, there are people today who say, I'm a theonomist, but what I mean by theonomy is we've got two choices. We can either use the law, law God's given us or make up our own. And so I'm a theonomist, not an autonomist. <laughs> I had a pastor, uh, had a car, and apparently owned this car for a long time because I remember this bumper sticker. It was God's law or chaos. And he was no theonomist, but by that definition that you're giving us, he would have been. Of course it's God's law or chaos. No, no Christian could doubt that. But, and I want to let Dr. Lee uh, have a say of this, but what what you say to people who say that general equity is theonomy? No, it's not. The, the teaching of the confession is that only the general equity of the law is of moral use. Uh, and, and, and the original theonomists did not make that distinction. I'm sorry. They did not. Um, and so Rush Dooney and North did make a distinction uh, that we have in the confession. Uh, they believed that God, the civil laws given to Israel were a model for what the civil laws of every nation in the world should be like. And, and the fact of the matter is that the confession is teaching that we can learn something about the moral application of God's law to the state and to the church or from those laws, but, but that those laws are composed of two things. They're composed of God's moral law, and they're composed of the environment and circumstances into which that law was applied in the theocracy. And we're, we're not in the theocracy. The theocracy was destroyed with the destruction of the theocracy, there was the destruction of that civil law, and all of that took place under the purpose and judgment of God. So um, I, I, I just I, I think that uh, uh, theonomy is a lot more than uh, than general equity in terms of its original meaning. I agree, and just a just an observation about you know if it were so clear that these laws, you know, the judicial laws, the civil laws were supposed to come over in the New Covenant. Yeah. You don't seem to get a hint of that from the apostles in the New Testament, writing oh, to the New Testament right. church. Yeah. You know, you, in fact, you, I mean, you get Peter telling, you know, the persecuted church, honor the emperor, yeah. not overthrow the emperor and bring back these judicial, like, you know what you should be doing out there. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's um it's just an interesting observation that that's a, that's a strange emphasis that seems strikingly absent from yeah. how the uh, the apostles are thinking about law. A lot a lot of the things that you hear from the old theonomists and read from the old theonomists only make sense if you're talking to someone living in a country where they have some sort of uh something to do with the government, someone in a republic or or a democracy. Mm -hmm. If you're living under a dictator and somebody starts preaching theonomy, your question is, what can I do about it? What are we going to do about it? That's right. It's, yeah. yeah. You know, um, I, I want to comment on this a little bit, too. Um, we really have to remember that uh, Kelvin, uh, and he says it really clearly. Again, I'm talking about Book 4, Chapter 20. 
says that the penalties were of the law of the civil law of Israel were intended for that time and age and for those people, uh, and 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 weren't intended to be universalized, right? So um, I I think I think again this is just going a direction that uh, the progenitor of the Reformed tradition uh, said was uh, you know wrongheaded. This leads nicely in the next question. Some claim that since judicial laws of Moses are based on the moral law, we should look to the passages that speak about the death sentence of fornicators or those who go after unnatural things and apply them to modern society. Do you think this is a valid understanding and application? So I guess they're asking, is it valid application to say we should put fornicators and adulterers to death? Uh, there's another observation I was thinking of under the last question, but I think it makes sense here too. Um, there was a critique, and I can't remember exactly the name of the book, but there was a critique of theonomy done by the Westminster faculty, Westminster East faculty, a number of years ago and I, um, I remember an article, I'm trying to remember the man's name, I don't have it uh, close to me, but you can find the article in that critique. And he, he, he did something that, you know, sometimes you're reading something and you say, duh, why didn't I think of that to begin with? And what this guy did was, well, he's a member of the Westminster faculty, he says, okay, so um, we're talking about civil law, judicial law of Israel here. Why don't we just go to the New Testament and see how the New Testament used the civil law? I thought, duh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so, <laughs> he, uh, 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 and what he did, he went to the New Testament, and he showed that in the New Testament, I don't think we can use this to deny that there's any civil application or appropriate judicial application of the law if we have an opportunity to implement it. But what he showed is that throughout the New Testament, the application of the civil law of Israel was, was, was two things. It was ecclesiastical right. and it was eschatological. And he, he surveyed the book of Hebrews. He went to other places and, and, and he showed the way that Paul and the other apostles applied the civil law of Israel was uh, uh, typologically to the church or uh, eschatologically to last things, you know. If, if, if the people under the law of Moses died without Hebrews 10, then what will happen to us if we neglect till greater salvation? Uh, so, and, and that kind of, that kind of uh, argument, and I thought, wow, that's, that, that's powerful. And I, I really can't, um, while I wouldn't, I certainly believe, and this is another question, that if uh, we're going to have a voice in what civil law should be like, they should be an application of the law of God appropriately. Um, there's, no, there's no instance of that kind of application of the law of God in the New Testament that I'm aware of. All those applications are, are ecclesiastical or eschatological. That's right. Yeah, that brings to mind when Paul is dealing with the man who has his father's wife. Right. He doesn't say stoning. Right. Mm -hmm. No, he says, put him out of the church. Right. Because, because, and, and, you know, what's behind that? Well, I think what's behind that 
there, there's a there's a common denier, denominator behind ecclesiastical now eschatological, and that is that those civil laws apply to the kingdom of God. Gentile kingdoms are not the kingdom of God, and they're never intended to be the kingdom of God. They are a temporary expedient uh, uh, to bring order to the world uh, until the kingdom of God comes back at the second coming. The present manifestation of the kingdom of God is the church. The future manifestation of the kingdom of God is eschatological, but the future, the present manifestation of the kingdom of God is not a civil organization at all. Very important. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of what we disagree with. What are areas in the church and society that we need to address with the law? Well, uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy uh, 1.8, you know, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And it is good in various different ways. And it is good, even apart from faith, it is good for uh, unbelievers to externally obey the law. It's good for them to not commit adultery. It is good in a temporal sense. It's good for society, for husbands and wives to stay together. It's good for people not to steal from one another. It's good for people not to murder one another. And so to that end, our magistrates in our American Democratic Republic need to be encouraged to uh, help regulate our society according to these moral standards that are fixed and for it's loving to our neighbor to petition the magistrates to be ruling in accordance with this, especially the second table of the law for the for the um, ordering of society. Um, and I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I, I do think that um, the doctrine of liberty of conscience is important and it's good for people to have protections, freedoms to rightly observe the first table of the law right. as they can. I think the civil magistrate, their job is not to enforce particular obedience to those laws, but to protect the spaces so that people can worship with religious liberty according to that first table of the law. So right. that, that's how I begin to think through applying the law in a civil way. Let's regulate the external obedience to the second table of the law. We can do it. We obviously can't legislate people lusting in their heart and murdering in their heart, but we can punish uh, actual physical murderers. We can punish actual thieves, you know, people that actually externally break those rules. And then we provide protections for people to have religious liberty to obey the first table of the law according to their conscience and yeah, let me, let me say, I think that here uh, some careful distinctions need to be made. But I, I guess I can, to give them their due, I think that Theonomus, the original and present, have a point on this issue. I think it's a point they take too far, and I'll explain why in a second. But they have a point in that um, the law of God, the word of God, Christ himself, the king, is ahead over all things to the church. So I, I certainly don't want to dispute, I actually think it's indisputable, that if you want to talk about what civil authority ought to do, they ought to rule society according to the word of God. 
Uh, I, I don't think that can be disputed. I think it's clear. I think it's, it's necessary implication of what we believe. I think it's reformed theology. I think it's what it means to believe in Christ as King. What's the problem? The problem is that they, that, uh, that, that principle has been taken to mean, uh, or to imply that the civil authority should, uh, enforce the first table of the law. But I want to say, and, and Baptists from their beginning have said this in, in the interest of separation of church and state and liberty of conscience, um, that there's a distinction, an important distinction, between uh, a civil authority uh, saying that the word of God has authority over the civil authority and that the civil authority ought to rule according to it, and to say, on the other hand, that they ought to enforce the first table of the law. So on the one, one hand, we can say what you just said. Uh, should they rule in light of the word of God? Yes. Should they therefore uh, provide religious freedom to people to worship as they, as they ought, uh, as they would like? Yes. That's a liberty that the civil government should, should stand in defense of. They should stand in defense of people being denied life and property. That's their job, uh, to protect people's life and property. Uh, they should stand in defense of, of Christians being deprived of life and property uh, because they don't, uh, uh, because they they re refuse to give up the worship of God, whatever that means in terms of the first four table, first four commandments of the law. But what where things get confused in the original Westminster tradition is that that's taken to mean that it's the civil government's authority to enforce the first table of the law. And, and the problem with that is that uh, is, is not that they aren't uh, under the word of God, law of God. The problem is that's not their job. That's not their jurisdiction. Civil authority does not rule men's souls, and it does not rule how they worship. It never was intended to rule that um, since the destruction of theocracy. And so what, what's coming back here is the, that uh, there's a subtle re-erection of the theocratic kingdom. Of course there was no religious liberty in the theocratic kingdom, but we don't live in the theocratic kingdom now. Uh, we, we live under Gentile kingdoms, and we don't have Christ as, as, our, as our civil authority yet. And I think I can show, show that from the New Testament. We have... We have Christ as, our, as the king of the church, but he has delegated civil authority to the Gentile kingdoms, and it is not their job, it's not the job of civil authority to enforce first table issues. Uh, it is their job to provide uh, Christians and other and Jews and, and, and Mohammedans with the right to worship. It's not their job uh, to uh, force Jews and Mohammedans to keep the first day of the week holy. And, and to take that even further, not only is the state who is given the power of the sword, is it not their job, oh. they're, they're incapable oh. of doing it, right? They, right? they cannot do with the physical sword what only the sword of the Spirit can do. Exactly. There's, there's no way that the sword can be used by the civil magistrate to make someone regenerated and born again and brought into the spiritual kingdom. Yeah, the sword's a really bad weapon to uh, control men's souls. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't legislate anyone into being a believer. 
right. Uh, nor should you attempt to. Uh, but you can protect people's religious liberty. And when it comes down to that, I don't know if you'll agree with me to say this, this might be something we should talk about, but uh, when it comes to the issue of the Christian Sabbath, uh, even though I'm a Christian Sabbatarian, I think that the old blue laws enforcing, um, enforcing the observance of the Sabbath uh, were probably uh, a step too far in terms of the rights of the civil authority. Protecting people's right to practice the Christian Sabbath so that they might, you know, for instance, uh, every religion would be given the right to have ordinarily their holy day off of work. That's one thing. But making uh, the whole of society, whether they're Christian or not, keep the first day holy, that's something else. Yeah, I, I still, I, I live in Alabama. Uh, and in my neck of the woods around, around there, they still have, you know, these curtains they'll pull down in front of the alcohol on Sunday in the grocery store, if uh -huh. the grocery store is open in these older uh, rural counties. Uh -huh. And so I, I, I agree that uh, I think the magistrate needs to protect people so that they're not discriminated against if they want to worship on the holy day of, mm -hmm. of, of Christians or of Jews on, on Saturday uh, or of other religions. And so, but to try and legislate it in that way of, positively enforcing certain restrictions to try and favor one over the other without protecting them all. That's, that's a step too far. Uh, just let me add, I, I cited this article in a recent blog on this issue, uh, but um, the principle I was stating about it's not the civil authority's jurisdiction or job to enforce first table, that principle is stated really clearly by the uh, famous 20th century reform theologian, John Murray, in uh, one of the essays in his collected writings. Mm -hmm. And it's an excellent essay uh, by a Presbyterian that has come to see the wrong-headedness of the original Westminster provisions with regard to civil authority. Absolutely, yeah. All right, well, the second half of this last question in this area has already been answered, but um, what is the best work that ex explains two kingdom theology? Some recommend Van Drunen's work while others scoff, it, scoff at it as being radical 2K. Oh. And it concluded, should the government have any involvement in the application of the first table of law? I think you've already answered that. So you have any recommendations on good reading for two kingdom theology? Uh, I'm I'm generally pleased with a lot that Van Drunen writes, particularly as it relates to natural law. Um, so, you know, obviously I'm not going to agree with everything in there. He's a wonderful Paedobaptist brother. Uh, I think Ron Baines wrote a chapter on two kingdom theology and, and early Baptist theology that's in the um, edited volume, Recovering Our Covenantal Heritage, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm... I don't have any other things off the top of my head. Yeah, I think in a lot of the modern discussions, sometimes it's forgotten that two kingdom theology, it really is our Reformation heritage. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that Luther and Calvin got it completely right, but they did get it basically right in terms of the fact that the Christian lives in two kingdoms and, and uh, got it right as over against the Anabaptist notion that we only have allegiance to the kingdom of God and not to the secular kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I hear two kingdom theology, I know they're talking about Van Drunen and, and others, but 
uh, a good part of two kingdom theology is simply the Reformation heritage we have and then refined <coughs> and properly distinguished when it came into the Baptist tradition. Because of course, there wasn't anything like a free church in Calvin's Geneva <coughs> right. uh, in the policies of the West, the original Westminster. Right, and, then, and Calvin and Luther are wrestling with ideas that are, that are seen all the way back in Augustine's City of God. I mean, yeah. how, do we, how do we relate this city of man and the city of God? Mm -hmm. How do they relate? And, yeah. um, because in Constantinian Rome, you know, it was Rome was the city of God. You know, it was together, and then right. the, they fall. Yeah. How, well, it seems like God's kingdom just fell. What happened? Yeah. So that's what Augustine's trying to wrestle with in the city of God. You know, I, I argue in one of my historical theology courses that there was a massive breakthrough in Calvin's Geneva on the issue of religious liberty, although of course. Uh, they still he still believed in the union of church and state, but the massive breakthrough was Calvin's insistence that the that the church controlled who went to the Lord's table and not the civil magistrate, and and though that didn't get fleshed out or incarnated in what we know as religious liberty and the separation of church and state, uh, it was a massive break. It was like the first hole in the dike that ultimately washed away the idea of the union of church and state. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you have been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you would like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org.